Outlook, Building for the Future, Climate Change and Arbitration. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Crow. Jessica Crow is an independent arbitrator who specialises in energy and natural resources, climate change and the environment. She has a particular expertise in matters relating to the energy transition and the international climate change regime. In the field of climate change and governance, she advises corporates, investors and states in relation to international and domestic climate policy, transition regulations and litigation risk. Jessica's practice is also shaped by her role with leading research institutions. She's a doctoral researcher in climate law and litigation at the University of Cambridge, Centre for Energy, Environment and Natural Resource Governance, where she collaborates with world leading experts in climate science, economics and law. So Jessica is perfectly placed to discuss today's podcast with us, which is climate change arbitration, building for the future. Jessica, I'd like to start by exploring why arbitration might be an appropriate forum in which to resolve climate change related disputes. Well, thank you both for the invitation to speak about climate change and arbitration. I'm delighted to be here and I'm really looking forward to getting into this topic today. So to answer your question, I think I'll start with some data. And I'm thinking specifically of the year-end statistics provided by the major commercial and investment arbitration institutions, the ICC, the LCIA, and ICSID. And when we look at that data, the users of arbitration are really overwhelmingly represented in heavy emitting industries. Energy sector, construction, and the financial services sector, so those who are financing the first two sectors. And in the context of investor state dispute resolution, of course, it's always going to include governments. And I think the state is significant because corporates in these industries are going to be the first in line to feel the bite of tightening international and domestic climate regulations as greenhouse gas mitigation targets become more ambitious. And when you add to that the impact of litigation to enforce the Paris Agreement, these factors are going to start to force or at least heavily persuade actors in these industries to start moving their business in line with with the Paris Agreement's objectives. So that's, of course, going to have a knock-on effect on their existing commercial relationships and across global value chains for most of these companies are multinationals. And so they may already have an arbitration agreement in place And if they don't, these parties are going to be fairly familiar and will have comfort with arbitration and are likely to select it, particularly in commercial cases where there's no question of fighting for a particular precedent. And this is, of course, for all of the classic reasons why arbitration is advantageous and was uniquely advantageous for complex international disputes where perceptions of a neutral forum, neutral rules and governing law are really important for international parties. But also a particular feature is that you have the ability to select arbitrators with particular sectoral expertise in energy, in climate, in environmental law. And they're going to be particularly attuned to the sensitive balance that needs to be struck between economic rights and environmental protection in this context. And I'll just add one more thing, which is about the arbitration rules. I'd be remiss not to mention the procedural advantages, which are that they're inherently flexible. Of course, they provide certain advantages that litigation may not provide, like the opportunity to select arbitration rules that can accelerate the timeline or fast track certain issues. And those may be decisive to achieving a resolution, which may be particularly attractive in the context of climate change, where parties may be in conflict 
over maybe a carbon intensive resource or a technology that's facing obsolescence, they'd like to continue their commercial relationship, but perhaps come to a quick resolution of their differences so that they can restructure their relationship in a way that's viable to continue on in the green economy. In terms of your experience of arbitration, what kinds of climate change related matters are you seeing that are now being arbitrated? So this is probably where it's helpful to make the distinction between commercial and investment treaty arbitration. To start with investment treaty arbitration, there have been a lot of headline grabbing cases about fossil fuel investors suing states for passing more ambitious climate policy or for phasing down certain fuels, often because they're implementing their national greenhouse gas mitigation measures to achieve the Paris Agreement or as a result of climate litigation, where the courts have basically ordered them to achieve the same outcome. And in these cases, and I'm talking about the investor state cases, which arise under international investment agreements like the Energy Charter Treaty, they're actually really laying bare the tension between investment protection for foreign investors in the energy sector and the state's right to regulate in the public interest, particularly for an issue that's as pressing as climate change. On the other side, we've also seen investment cases in respect of renewable energy, So these are typically concerning incentive policies like feed-in tariffs or green credits, which are designed to attract foreign investment in solar and wind, for example. And in these cases, the investors are challenging changes or in some cases, the complete revocation of these policies, which they argue are necessary to be able to turn a profit in an industry which has such high upfront sunk costs like renewables. When we see these cases, often the revocations are linked to some kind of unforeseen economic instability in the jurisdiction, or simply the fact that states were inexperienced using these policy tools in the context of renewable energy and perhaps failed to anticipate their popularity or cap participation in some kind of a way And then at a certain point, we're not able to deliver the guaranteed tariffs at the level promised without actually passing on huge costs to the consumer. And that's, of course, going to be politically very unpopular. Then turning over to the commercial sphere, disputes can arise in the same kind of context, both in respect of tightening climate policy, as well as those investing in the green economy. There are, of course, cases between longstanding commercial partners and traditional industries like aerospace and the automotive industry, where certain technologies Like I can think of combustion engines as always the classic example where these technologies are being rendered obsolete. In the construction sector, the rising cost of carbon of core materials such as steel and cement can place serious pressure on supply chains. They can lead to disputes over who should bear the risk and cost of price fluctuations of carbon. And then, of course, phasing out coal, oil and gas will have knock-on effects to commercial JV partners to the EPC, the engineering procurement and construction partners, and pretty much all of the adjacent industries to the energy sector. And then I would say just finally, again, on the flip side of that, for those investing in the energy transition, the implementation of new first of its kind technology can always give rise to those kind of classic issues of delay and disruption on green infrastructure projects. And another interesting thing I think we're going to see is disputes between market participants in cap and trade schemes as we start to see more markets being linked, basically over the viability and additionality of carbon credits across those markets. To a certain extent, you've answered my next question. And again, given how wide and varied this is, it might be difficult to answer, but who typically are the parties to these climate-related arbitrations? 
Well, again, we're going to see probably some overlap, but a distinction between investment and commercial cases. In ICS, you typically have international investors in the energy sector, either those who are Paris aligned, like the renewable energy investors, or conversely, those in traditional kind of fossil fuel sectors that are facing asset stranding. In commercial arbitration, there really is no limit to who can be impacted. But initially, you would expect to see commercial partners in the energy sector and energy adjacent fields, engineering, infrastructure, as well as any heavy emitting industries. You can take construction, aerospace and the automotive industry, as well as those who finance them, including commercial and private banks and pension funds. So we can see there a really wide range in terms of the kinds of parties that can be involved and the kinds of disputes. As you said, arbitration is flexible. And so in many ways, it's really apt for that. Do you think there are any challenges or sensitivities that are particularly raised by climate-related arbitrations that don't typically arise in other arbitrations? I think the greatest challenge is one that's already been alluded to, which is really just this fundamental question of who should bear the risk and the cost of the energy transition. This issue arises in the first instance in investor-state arbitrations, where, as we said, states are implementing more ambitious domestic measures to mitigate greenhouse gases and align energy policy with the Paris Agreement. And we've seen this, for example, in the Netherlands, who, after implementing legislation to phase out coal by 2030, were immediately hit by two multi-billion dollar lawsuits from coal investors who apparently expected to be able to run for another 50 years. So then the question becomes, how does the law allocate the risk and economic burden of the state's right to regulate in order to protect the planet and the international investor's right to expect stability and regulatory stability in the jurisdiction in which it's invested? Should the energy sector bear it? Should the investor bear it? Or should the taxpayers bear it? And it's a really difficult question that the law is trying to grapple with right now. Another issue, of course, is whether it gives all of the relevant stakeholders a voice and a means to participate. The exit rules do permit non-party interventions. They're called amicus curiae briefs, and tribunals will typically permit this from other treaty drafting parties, for example, where they are looking for some assistance with points of interpretation of a particular article or a concept of public international law. But other impacted stakeholders face a really strict admissibility criteria when trying to submit amicus briefs in ISDS, particularly when they relate to social rights and environmental rights. And so this has actually been a reason for quite a bit of public backlash recently against the legitimacy of investor state dispute resolution in this context and something that I know that the institutions and the arbitrators are trying to grapple with as well. In the commercial context, most commercial rules permit voluntary third party joinder, but that's obviously going to be subject, of course, to both parties consent, which may or may not be forthcoming, which I think leads to the final sensitive issue, which is really this kind of delicate question of precedent in this context. We know there's been a wave of strategic climate litigation being brought by stakeholders, NGOs, citizens and indigenous groups to hold states and corporates to account for failing to mitigate climate change. And they're using human and constitutional rights, as well as the tort of negligence in order to have standing and bring these claims. But these cases are specifically seeking statements from the judiciary that these actors have a duty of care which they failed to uphold. In climate litigation, some of these successful landmark cases have resulted in court orders to do that, to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions in accordance with pathways that are consistent with the Paris Agreement's temperature goal. But in this context, you can see how the public forum and the scope of precedent-setting judicial power are necessary to achieve that. In arbitration, and especially in commercial arbitration between private parties, 
where the cases are confidential and there's no concept of precedent between one arbitration case and another, tribunals may interpret the law and decide these cases differently. Typically, they're not going to be about human rights because as private entities, corporations are not duty bearers in that regard. But there may be questions about the requisite level of due diligence required by companies when it comes to the climate under private and company law, which is an important public issue. So it's I would say, in my opinion, this is why it's really important that arbitrators with expertise in climate and environmental law are being appointed to these tribunals to decide these cases. I think you've brought out brilliantly there that all of the sensitivities that are coming to the fore here between different industries and also obviously this wider debate around climate change and some really difficult policies that are having to be implemented around it. In terms of the construction industry specifically, In a quick question, why do you think the construction industry should care about climate change and net zero? So to answer this question, I'm going to refer back to data again, which if you have a look at some of the data compiled by the leading research institutes on greenhouse gas emissions by sector, you can see that the construction sector accounts for a significant portion of global energy and also just process and raw material related carbon emissions some of which is being made up from the manufacturing building materials that we mentioned earlier, steel, cement, glass. And so I think there are three ways in which this industry will be exposed to transition risks and regulatory intervention and additionally litigation risk. And the first is because the sector contributes so significantly to climate change through its scope, one, two, three emissions. This is going to expose it to different types of regulatory tools, polluter pays type of instruments that will expose it to carbon cost by way of carbon taxes, cap and treat systems, or the carbon border adjustment mechanism that's being introduced into the EU and will likely be introduced into other jurisdictions, which try to address the problem of carbon leakage. I mean, second, because the industry is just fundamentally exposed to the risk from physical climate changes in the environment, like more extreme weather conditions on construction sites can cause significant damages to assets, water shortages, and deteriorating environmental conditions such as temperature increase and flooding can all have major impacts on construction and infrastructure. Then finally, and what I think is most important, actually, is the fact that there are many mandatory due diligence frameworks in the pipeline, including a major directive on corporate sustainability due diligence, which is going to be introduced in the EU. And the EU is often very persuasive in going around the world and trying to ensure that its trading partners are developing similar types of frameworks so that there are an equal playing field for those who are trading with partners in the EU. And these due diligence frameworks require companies you know, to identify, prevent, mitigate the adverse human rights and environmental impacts of their operations, global operations, including climate-related impacts. And so they do go beyond the jurisdictional scope and require them to have a look at their full value chain. And an activity that falls short of these standards, of course, can give rise to liability for noncompliance. There's probably going to be fines involved, but it also provides really low-hanging fruit for stakeholders to bring claims for greenwashing or potentially for negligence in some jurisdictions. How have you seen climate litigation starting to enter the world, specifically of construction arbitration? The aim of climate litigation is to plug the accountability gaps in the Paris Agreement. And these cases, when they are successful, are forcing states to raise their ambition when it comes to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. And so to do that, states have a number of regulatory tools at their disposal to achieve that, including, of course, by changing energy and climate policy. We saw the Netherlands 
with their decision to phase out coal, but they can also implement different market mechanisms that raise the cost of carbon under the polluter pays principle. And cap and trade systems are probably the best example of that. And cap and trade systems are a regulatory tool whereby emissions in the system are capped and polluters must pay for carbon credits if they exceed their allocation, with the principle being that the cost of carbon will hopefully eventually become so expensive that it will incentivize investment in abatement and decarbonization of the supply chain. So construction, as we already said, uses a lot of carbon intensive materials, is in and of itself a major emitter as an industry, which means that in I would say in the near and medium term, carbon price will impact the cost of capital and the cost of operations. And this is going to hit some actors more severely than others. And those actors may in turn rely on different contractual mechanisms that are already in place. You can think of things like price variation clauses or hardship that would be pretty well placed to address these types of Issues like they're often used in the context of energy contracts where you have different types of commodities that are subject to price variations like gas, for example. So when you can see that a situation where the cost per burden is disproportionately allocated, that is really likely to give rise to disputes amongst commercial partners. You've spoken a little bit so far about the kinds of developments we're seeing and the kinds of developments that we're going to be seeing in the future in terms of both the legal landscape, but also how the industry is actually going to have to operate to deal with these disputes. Are there any particular developments you think we're going to see in the next five years or so in terms of climate change and arbitration? Yeah, I think that actually climate litigation is a really helpful tool to understand the direction in which we can expect disputes to evolve and into arbitration as well. I think that even just starting looking at the regulatory change that's being pushed through by litigants, these are obviously, as we just said, going to have knock-on effects when it comes to energy policy, decarbonization, or the policies based on polluter pays type of instruments like carbon taxes, border adjustment mechanisms. We already know that there is a lot of measures right now in place to grow and expand emissions trading systems globally. So these are going to impact commercial actors and heavy emitting industries and likely give rise to disputes. Again, regarding this fundamental question of the allocation of risk and cost of the energy transition. I think another immediate area of impact concerns the development of the standard of care or the due diligence obligation to mitigate greenhouse gases. This is hitting both governments and major emitters in litigation and likely in arbitration. This is, of course, going to be linked to the fact that there's going to be increasing scrutiny on net zero claims, transition plans, which potentially over rely on greenhouse gas removals, negative emissions technologies, offsetting and formulations about carbon intensity. So these are going to be under, I think, under increasing scrutiny and linked to these due diligence obligations and this growing duty of care about mitigating climate emissions is going to be another area where companies are going to face considerable litigation risk. And then finally, I would just say a trend that is already in existence and is likely to grow is that which is at the intersection of investment protection and the environment. We're likely to see more claims under investment treaties in relation to both the implementation of climate policy and asset stranding as governments face more litigation, holding them to account for their climate commitments. But also on the other side, states are testing new policies to incentivize growth of the renewable energy industry. We're likely to see more claims from energy investors in that context. So litigation risk is maybe growing. What are your three practical tips for clients seeking to both protect the environment 
but also avoid arbitration or litigation where possible? So I think first, it's really important to be on top of the evolving standards for corporate climate accountability. So as we've already mentioned, several countries have adopted mandatory environmental due diligence legislation. There's a major EU sustainability due diligence directive that's imminent. And at the same time, litigation is just contributing to shaping the contours of this corporate climate due diligence obligation, particularly as it comes to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. That's really its primary kind of targets. And so this is an area where I'm actually asked to advise a lot on what the corporate standard of care is and what does it actually mean for corporates to be Paris aligned. And ultimately, the private sector is expected to collaborate with states to achieve their nationally determined contributions and their global net zero strategies. And failing to exercise due diligence in this regard will subject companies to considerable litigation risk as we get closer and closer to 2030. Second, I would say that while voluntary reporting and compliance frameworks can assist companies to align their operations with net zero, and they're really fantastic transnational tools for multinationals with operations across different jurisdictions, which may have different levels of climate regulation, it's really important not to overpromise and underdeliver because this is going to increasingly expose companies to regulatory scrutiny fines, but as we mentioned earlier, also allegations of greenwashing. So I think It's really important for companies to have a really close look and develop a multi-year transition plan with targets and actions that set out how firms are going to ensure that their business model and strategy are compatible with the Paris Agreement. And this is really the best insurance and the best way that companies can mitigate climate-related transition and litigation risk in the long term. And then... I think my final piece of advice, particularly for mitigating litigation risk, would be that companies should proactively audit conflict risks with existing commercial partners, just with a view to how the changing regulatory landscape and things like fluctuating carbon price, asset stranding, abatement costs could impact them. And once that data is available, really developing a plan to avoid or manage those potential conflicts. And if you don't have the in-house capacity to do that, seeking external assistance in that regard, because it's far better for commercial partners to work together to transform those relationships in industries that are facing obsolation rather than trying to tie up time and resources and disputes, which could be far better devoted to developing the energy resources, the infrastructure and the technology that we need to transform the energy sector and the economy. Thank you, Jessica. That was so interesting and also so practical for our listeners as well. And I think that conversation really draws out so helpfully for people what they can do at the moment, but also the direction of travel for all of these disputes so that they can start to look to the future and figure out what their company or business and what indeed what litigation is going to look like in five, 10 years down the line. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. At 13 on Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.